Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The COVID-19 outbreak in India is probably the world's worst humanitarian crisis right now. Cases are soaring beyond control. Official statistics seem to dramatically understate the number of cases that are going on. There's not enough oxygen to go around. Crematoria are full. It, it, It truly could not be worse, except there's some evidence it's about to get worse. The situation is dire, and it's presenting a serious challenge for Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who has worked in the past few years to solidify his control in in basically authoritarian fashion over the Indian political system. But now, with this incredible high-profile failure, what does that say about his grip on power? And what does that say in conjunction with a recent election in the really important state of West Bengal, where his party's attempt to take over the local government was decisively rebuked by voters? That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Hey. Um, so it, it's it's fairly hard to overstate how bad the situation in India is right now. One, one projection I looked at suggested that their deaths could be multiplying exponentially, that there could be a million deaths by July. Uh, which is a sort of mind-boggling number. That's a worst-case projection. We don't know if that's going to happen. But it, it, to me, it underscores how bad things are right now in India. Jen, can you sort of walk us through the sort of the full scope of what's been happening in the past few weeks for people who haven't been paying as close attention as we have? Yeah. So um, just to kind of go back, if you remember, um, and you may not, uh, India actually did one of the world's kind of strictest lockdowns during its first wave and seemed to, you know, actually get the virus pretty well under control at first. And then things went sour. Um, We'll talk about some of the reasons why a little bit later in the show, but basically early, you know, declarations of victory and kind of relaxing of restrictions and kind of general sense that, that the virus was defeated, that things were getting better, basically led the government and people to sort of return to original kind of behavior with social distancing, masking, kind of going by the wayside, et cetera. And then the government made some additional decisions that weren't great. 
And now they're facing a horrific second wave. Um, Just on Thursday, so when we're recording, the country reported over 400,000 new infections and nearly 4,000 deaths in just the previous 24 hours. And experts are basically saying that the surge could hit 500,000 cases per day in the coming weeks. So that's just, those numbers are almost unfathomable because they're just so high. But on top of that, you know, as we've seen in other countries, it is now crippling India's healthcare system. As you said, Zach, they're running out of oxygen. Hospitals are being completely overwhelmed. Doctors and nurses are getting infected. We are seeing really dire pleas on social media people have taken to essentially trying to crowdsource healthcare, putting up posts saying, you know, I have a patient that needs oxygen here. Can you get it? Uh, I have a person who needs a blood transfusion. Can you bring it here? All sorts of just dire pleas. Everyone is just getting completely overwhelmed. And, you know, we're seeing the government really scramble to to address it on top of this, right? So if you remember earlier, you know, India was one of the main manufacturers of vaccines. The Serum Institute of India makes um, an Indian version of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Um, They were exporting, you know, millions of doses around the world as part of that. In addition, they make some other vaccines of their own. Um, all of a sudden, they realized, whoa, whoa, we're running out. So vaccine you know, clinics and, and vaccination sites around the country are running out. They're having to put up signs that say, sorry, we're out. They have now clamped down on, on the exports and said, no, we need to keep all these vaccines that we can make here to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. But the vaccination program is slowing, not just for the reason of shortage, but for other reasons. So basically, it's a, it's a perfect storm of awful that's happening right now. The Indian government has been, you know, asking the international community now for help. The US, the UK, the EU, lots of other countries are trying to chip in and send aid where they can, Um, you know, oxygen supplies, all sorts of things, vaccines, et cetera. But it is a monumental crisis. And the the line, I mean, if you look at the, the graphs of cases, it's just staggering. It's almost a vertical line of the cases going directly up. Um, So that is the situation in India right now. And the Modi government is deeply struggling to get even the slightest handle on it. Yeah, I mean, I'll repeat something that I said in a a previous podcast, which is, you know, I I reported on what looked like at the time, this was early 2020, everyone thought that India was going to be just a a horrible case. And as you mentioned rightly, Jen, like Modi took it pretty seriously early on um, and and established a, a strong lockdown and and seemed to, you know, stave off the worst. Here were the predictions. A doctor I talked to at a hospital in central India, and I'll just repeat exactly what he said. We expect 55% of the Indian people will get a COVID-19 infection. That's 300 to 500 million cases over the next four months. If the current disease trajectory is anything to go by, we expect 1 million or 2 million deaths in India over a one-year period. Uh, and that was March 2020. So... That didn't happen, right? I mean, India actually had a pretty strong control over what was going on. There were definitely questions about they were slow to you know, provide medical care and slow to actually do testing. Um, and so part of the reason, perhaps, that we're, that we're seeing the numbers now is that India's got a better handle on testing, and so numbers are going up, and then there's always been undercounts. But I think that's a small thing. The issue is that there was a ser- you know, the government took it seriously initially, and then they kind of declared victory. Like Modi was like, we did it. We solved it. Great. Now we can go out and about. Now we can hold rallies. Now now we've got it. And 
people followed along, right? So lockdowns were lifted. People went out. They had a great time. Um, tons of other reasons. And now you're sort of seeing um, this spread. And so I feel like there's, you can almost cut it like in half, right? There was a time where Modi took it seriously. Again, tons of problems with the response. And then there was the sort of declared victory. And this is the common problem we see around the world. Uh, when you have certain leaders, a lot of them tend to be sort of uh, right-wing uh, nationalist types, the Bolsonaros, the Trumps, and, and the Modis of the world, who kind of either go, this is a hoax, or don't take it as seriously as they should. And we have these kinds of results. Not that that's, they're the only type of governments that have problems. AMLO in Mexico is having tons of issues as well. Uh, and he's on the left. But still, like, th- this is what I think you sort of saw happen. And so now those dire predictions from early 2020 were delayed until kind of now, and we're seeing those catastrophic numbers in real time. Uh, it's worth emphasizing, though, the point that Alex just made about declaring victory, because I think it's, it, first of all, it's very literal, right? It's not like he just sort of metaphorically said that. Uh, it, it was on, in a January 28th speech. Uh, Modi was speaking to a, a sort of virtual summit of the World Economic Forum, the famous Davos meeting. He asked for praise from the gathered people for saving, quote-unquote, humanity from a big disaster by containing the coronavirus effectively. Right? He very literally said we had contained it. And so when, when life in India started to go back to normal, it wasn't just that people were tired of the lockdowns, which were quite stringent early on and did seem to, to suppress the numbers very effectively, even if there was also a huge humanitarian toll from the sort of haphazard and, and incredibly rapid way they were implemented, especially on migrant workers. Um, so they they swung from this very harsh lockdown to this extremely open policy early this year, uh, which had a few different implications, right? Like, and I'll, I'll just highlight two of them right now. Uh, aside from the obvious one that Alex just pointed out, which is when you have people doing stuff, the virus tends to spread. Uh, The first is that it decreased people's interest in getting vaccines. When you tell them the virus is contained, it's done, we're fine, they're like, what's the point in getting this vaccine? And so this seems to have contributed to low vaccine uptake in India. Uh, The second point is that It caused the government to refocus its efforts on politics rather than containing the virus. And so you saw in the elections in West Bengal, a very important state that we're going to talk about more in the second half of this episode, uh, was an elections calendar that was like incredibly long, like two months of voting, roughly. And it featured huge rallies by Modi's party. Other parties had rallies too, but his his were especially prominent because the government is tasked with fighting the coronavirus, and he was talking about how great it is to see all these people out there. And there seems to be a very strong relationship in the data in West Bengal between the increases in case counts and the campaign proceeding. And it's no surprise that when you gather a lot of people together repeatedly over and over again, you have people come in and out from different parts of the country to assist in the campaigning, that you're going to get increasing cases. So, So the conjunction of... Uh, the government's disinterest in like maintaining a sense of seriousness and national unity and fighting the virus and its refocus on politics seems to have played a, a pretty significant role in the current outbreak happening. Yeah, I think there's one additional point, um, but I, I do want to talk more about the politics side of things. Um, but I think there's one additional thing to mention, which is the, the spread of variants. Um, there is what is being described as a double mutant um, which it, it basically just means it's when two mutations come together in the same virus. So there's a, a variant 
um, in India that's spreading. They don't know for sure because they're not the government's not doing a ton of, you know, the kind of DNA kind of sequencing to check all of the infections to see if it's the variant, if it's the main original OG COVID, et cetera. So they're not sure how much it's to blame for this big second wave, but there is speculation that that is partly at least what's driving this. Um, and it makes sense if you think about, you know, what we've talked about throughout the pandemic, which is the longer it goes unchecked, the more chance it has to spread. And I think, you know, one additional thing to realize uh, is just the, the population of India is massive, right? It's a huge country. So while the U.S. still has more cases and more deaths, the potential for this to spread even further in India, I mean, they're already warning that there could be a third wave. So I think it's just the sheer numbers. And it's also, you know, the Indian population, very much like the U.S. Uh, and American population and many around the world are very mobile. There's a lot of travel, you know, there's a lot of business ties back and forth between, you know, other countries in India. And so there's a lot of concern too about travel and how this could spread elsewhere. So beyond the fact that like this is a humanitarian crisis within India, which I think is the most important thing to focus on. But I think it's also the case that there's fear that this could spread, you know, more broadly around the world, including with the variants. And we're now already starting to see nearby Nepal have a huge spike in cases and, and Experts are starting to warn that it could be the next India. And so we're already seeing that kind of knock-on effect, right? And it's also, again, going back to the vaccine issue, right? India is one of the main global vaccine suppliers. So with India being under, you know, such a dire situation and locking down its own vaccines, that will also have knock-on effects for the rest of the world who needs those vaccines to get their COVID outbreaks under control. So it's a really global problem and a global catastrophe. We're just seeing the acute pain in India right now. Yeah. I mean, to, to you know, bolster what you said, it's 1.3 or so billion people in India. That's like one seventh of humanity, right? So th that's right. that's the scale we're talking about here. Uh, I, I do want to mention just sort of one broader thing. And this, again, goes back to some of the reporting I did before. But in general, you know, we have to remember what India is kind of like. It's obviously a super vibrant, diverse country with, you know, all, all kinds of different social strata and, 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 and classes, et cetera. But it is, and this is something that, you know, experts were, were telling me when, when we were all worried about this in early 2020, was, look, like any government in India would struggle to contain a pandemic like this because, look, it's massive, right? It's hard to sort of tell over a billion people to work in one sort of direction. The public healthcare system is very poor. The, there's a private healthcare system that you know the the rich and, and more powerful in India have access to. It's wildly expensive. You know, about a quarter of the population is illiterate, um, and so it's really hard for even a, a dedicated public relations campaign about you know like take these steps, stay at home. Like oh, a lot of people don't you know read the flyers or whatever, and that's you know roughly 300 million people. You know, just under the size of the United States um, in terms of population size. So many people are packed in into um, cities and whatever that it's really hard to maintain social distancing. And then you also have about 100 million people over the age of 60. So I had folks who were basically saying, like, you know, if India even were to follow the trajectory of Italy early on in the pandemic, you know, it would be a catastrophe. And it's particularly in poorer states where they just have no real healthcare capacity. So we should talk about Modi, and, and we already have and we will continue to because he's a, he's a big cause of the problem. But, like, almost any type of outbreak in India was going to lead 
to this kind of issue. And so the first year, again, was kind of a success. Um, you got to give them that. It's, it was kind of amazing um, what they were able to pull off, even though, and I have tons of criticisms of the early job, but still they did pretty well. But now when you, when you relaxed, uh, and it's and Modi relaxed very clearly as Zach read, like he declared victory. Then all of these issues that I just read and more pile up and, and you're now just getting um, the, the horrible scenes that we're seeing. Part of this, Alex, as you just suggested, like this is a really, really difficult pandemic to contain. The world's wealthiest countries um, have had a lot of trouble with it. Uh, yeah. Even the ones that followed you know, the scientific advice, Germany, France, like these are really, really rich countries with a lot of resources, and they don't have anything like the rural poverty that you see in India. You know, they've had pretty significant numbers of deaths too. At the same time, uh, there are a lot of governance choices, and we've outlined a few of them that have have contributed to this. Another one that I uh, think is important is the lack of preparation in terms of oxygen resources in case there were a crisis. So right now, one of the big problems is that there's just not enough medical oxygen available for people. Who are hospitalized. Uh, there's also a shortage of drugs like remdesivir that are used to, to mitigate COVID rather than cure it uh, and to save people's lives when they have acute cases. And right, the government just was not prepared for there to be a significant outbreak after they started relaxing social distancing measures. You know, obviously the main significance here is the cost in human lives, right? The, the secondary significance but one that, that does have really huge and long-term ramifications for the Indian population is what it does to the current government's political standing. It really matters to Modi to be perceived to some degree as a competent technocrat, in addition to the, the sort of centerpiece of his political identity, which is as a Hindu nationalist leader, right? Somebody who unites... Hindus against Muslims and Hindus across caste lines, which is a really important traditional division in Indian society. But his party, the BJP, has, uh, under his leadership, really focused on presenting a united Hindu front against uh, Muslims in particular, primarily, and, and reasserting India as a Hindu state. Uh, this cuts against that, right? Not only does it de-emphasize identity, the COVID virus does not know, you know, distinctions based on religion, race, caste, gender, you know, people, everybody dies from COVID. And so the the issue of addressing it is one of government competence rather than sectarian politics. Speaking to the second, this other part of his appeal, right, the government is, is failing in a variety of different basic governance tasks on this, controlling people's movements, not contributing through its own actions, right, having things prepared to, even in a difficult, hard-to-manage situation, mitigate the consequences of widespread disease spread. And there, the statistics in India, while obviously very difficult to compile given the huge rural population, are, are all woeful undercounts, according to most experts. I've, I've heard estimates in the range of 1.5 to 5 times uh, undercounting the, the COVID numbers. And again, the government doesn't have, a, have an effective surveillance and testing regime. Uh, or not a good enough one. There's a shortage of tests. It's just like, it's it's failure after failure after failure. And while it's obviously not the only cause of the outbreak, I think a lot, it seems anyway, I, I haven't seen any good reliable polling, but from the reporting that I've read on the ground, that a lot of, of Indians are really, really upset with the way the government has handled this and are seeing it as a failure of Modi, who is quite popular personally, but seeing it as as, as a real blot, maybe the biggest blot on his record so far. Well, I think there's also a reason for that beyond the fact that his government is very much responsible, but he purposely 
made himself literally his face, the face of the COVID response because he thought he was doing a great job. And again, they did pretty well. There were only something like a little over 500 cases uh, in the country when they did the first big lockdown, right? And they literally made people, you couldn't leave the house unless you're going to buy groceries. It was a hardcore lockdown nationwide. But he, you know, Modi made himself the literal face. So when you get your vaccine in India, you get a certificate with Modi's face on it, quite literally. The COVID relief fund that, you know, kind of helps support people who are affected is called PM Cares. It's an acronym for Prime Minister's Citizens Assistance and Relief in Emergency Situations Fund. And it also has Modi's face on the website. So he literally like tied his name and his face to the recovery. So, you know, when things go badly as they have, his face is everywhere saying, look, I was the one doing this. Well, now everyone's pointing right back at his face and going, yeah, you messed up. And what are you doing now? And now there are all these cries for, you know, Modi resign and where's Modi and what's, what is he doing? And meanwhile, um, CNN actually has a really great kind of timeline showing the spikes in cases and how cases were growing and the statements that Modi's government ministers were putting out as those cases were going out, showing the cases were ballooning and they were saying it's under control, it's under control. They allowed the big kind of Hindu festival Kumela where millions go to bathe in the River Ganges. They allowed that to go ahead, even though experts were warning this could be a super spreader event with millions of people crowded together in incredibly close outside. Yes, but still all packed together and coming from all across the country. So it's not an accident that people are blaming Modi, right? If you are the leader and you take responsibility and you try to launch a big PR campaign that is, look how good I am, look how great I did, and then things go badly, that is going to slingshot right back onto you. And that's what he's seeing now. Yeah, it reminds me of Bolsonaro a little bit. I mean, Modi obviously took it more seriously than Bolsonaro has, but the that sort of timeline, I mean, there were the, you know, where all the data showed this is getting worse, you know, this is getting worse. And he's like, nah, it's fine. Um, everything's fine. This is Trumpian too. And it goes to sort of a deeper question that we've talked about a lot on this show, which is, you know, the it is extremely hard for any world leader to get a handle on, on a, this kind of thing based on multiple factors, the size of your nation, where you were hit, um, you know, how quickly you responded, et cetera. But if there's like one sort of thing that I think we definitively learned, it is that denialism of the severity of the issue by a leader is going to lead to a worse response. And Modi is now, I think, the most, you know, is the poster child of this, uh, almost literally, because his face is everywhere. Um, it is uh, striking to me that after taking it seriously for a first year, now that he declared victory, like he can't walk it back. And so he's sort of painted himself into this corner. And part of it is, is his own personality. Like he's trying to treat himself somewhat godlike, right? Like he is this sort of messianic figure to save India. I mean, that's a lot of people still to this day. And in a lot of reports I'm reading, a lot of his fans are like, yeah, we get that he's messed up the coronavirus and he hasn't delivered on his economic promises. But if anyone is going to fix India's myriad problems, it's only this guy. I remember reading a book years ago called In Spite of the Gods by Edward Luce, which was about India. Um, and even he predicts like this guy, Narendra Modi, is going to be prime minister and he's like not going to really give up the spot. And the reason was there was already this general feeling many, you know, you know, a decade plus ago that he was going to be this kind of guy, that everyone would revere him and that that would give him a sort of megalomania. Um, not that he, you know, he seems to already have that. 
But like all this to say is that sort of personality type, that sort of, you know, way of being has put him into his, you know, he put himself into this corner um, and he should have the humility to get out, but he can't because that's against his own brand. So uh, it's, it's incredible to see like how denialism, um, you know, it, it's affected leaders differently, but I think the, the consequences tend to be the same, which is catastrophe uh, and, and a worse overall response. And like in, you know, in, Indian people are the ones suffering from it. Now, uh, we're going to take a, a break here. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the elections in West Bengal, uh, which is a very important state where the results did not go the way that Modi wanted them to. And we're going to talk about how that plays into the entire COVID-related crisis. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. Uh, we've been talking about the Indian coronavirus crisis, and we've, we sort of, right before the break, started getting into the political implications of the government's myriad failures on the virus. Uh, one place that, that's really notable when we're talking about the future political trajectory of India is, is West Bengal. So India just had a round of local elections, uh, which is for control of state governments in five different states. Uh, most of the states had sort of expected results with the party that uh, you know the, that was broadly anticipated to win the elections. Winning uh, West Bengal was is the most important of these regional elections. It is is very very left leaning traditionally. It was governed by a communist faction for thirty years, roughly, like an actual revolutionary communist faction at one point. Uh, so that that tells you a lot about where their traditional trajectory was. It's a it's a real center of, of culture, India, in a lot of ways. Uh, the capital, Calcutta, is a major hub and a very large city, and and so it it seemed like hostile territory for Modi's party. Except this time, they really made a play to try to win the local elections. Uh, like they really pushed hard on it, and we're going to get into the ways, both legitimate and illegitimately, they did that. But the end results, Alex, was a a somewhat larger than expected defeat for their party. Even in this hostile territory, they were supposed to do better than they did. Yeah, I mean, as as you're, you wrote a really good piece on this, which we'll link to in the show notes. But it Aww, shows that thanks. you know, that, I know <laughs> uh, it was it was very very good reading. Uh, yeah, basically the 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 TMC, the which you know the left wing party, which is the incumbent, you know, held a supermajority in the parliament around 213 seats out of 294. The BJP, Modi's party. Um, which, as, as you noted, some exit polls suggested would win, you know, outright is going to hold fewer than 80. So that's not great 
for Modi's team. Um, however, as you also know, like, you know, West Bengal is kind of like India's California. So I do sort of think of, I mean, and it's in West Bengal, by the way, just so you know where it is, it's on the eastern part of India. You know, it touches Bangladesh, it's Calcutta, which is a, a city made famous. Um, well, once it's an important city, but also made famous just because that's where Mother Teresa did a lot of her work. Um, it's, that's sort of like, it's the main city of West Bengal. But like, I, I guess I'm imagining, you know, if, if Donald Trump put all of his, you know, political, like spend a lot of time in California, like would he, would Republicans sweep or do really well? Can't imagine that they would. Um, so I, I have a little trouble reading too much into it because, you know, the, this, the results were roughly as expected elsewhere. Um, but I do think the important thing we got to get out of here is like, you know, Modi does have political challenges. It's something I say, I feel like this is the phrase outside of soccer stuff I say the most is that, you know, dictators have politics too. Um, and, and, uh, Modi is, uh, I wouldn't say full dictatorial yet, but definitely close, um, authoritarian for sure. And, uh, you know, he has to work like, you know, he doesn't have full control over a country and how, how could anyone have a full control over a nation of 1.3 roughly billion people? Um, it shows that, you know, not everything he does or attempts is going to work out. Um, and West Bengal seems to be sort of the latest indication. Now, why the struggles? Is it because of the politics of West Bengal? Some people would say that. Is uh, is it because of the coronavirus? Sure. Um, is it because, you know, maybe a lot of his followers um, who didn't take it seriously, maybe they got sick and couldn't vote? Like, there's all other kinds of, of reasons here. Um, but I think if, if you're Modi and you're already worried about, you know, how this whole thing is working out for you, like, you know, the coronavirus is perhaps making you less popular... And now you see the West Bengal results. You might not put that much stock on it for some of the reasons I described, but you might also go, hmm, maybe I'm not, uh, you know, going to sail through in another election, or maybe I still have a lot more things I got to worry worry about, or maybe, and this would be sort of the upshot of it, maybe I do have to take this COVID thing seriously. Yeah, I think uh, it's worth noting, though, and Zach, I, I kind of want you to go into this a little bit here, that it's not just that they, like, the BJP went all in in terms of like, you know, doing a lot of campaigning there. They also pulled some some not so uh, legitimate stunts, uh, I, I guess I could put it, uh, to try to make things a little more advantageous for their party. Do you want to explain what happened there? I want to add two, two bits of nuance here, kind of pointing in the opposite direction, one relating to what Jen said and one relating to what Alex said. Um, it is true that this is a larger-than-anticipated defeat, but at the same time, in the last state assembly elections in 2016, the BJP won three seats, just three. And so this time around, they won nearly 80. Like, that is a pretty phenomenal increase. So it's it's difficult, in one sense, to spin this as just a complete and total rout because they improved their numbers somewhat substantially from last time, which is indicating how— the, the sort of baseline power of Modi's position in Indian politics right now. They wiped out the traditional left-wing parties, including Congress, the National Party, uh, the National Opposition Party that was dominant for, for many, many years after India's founding. And the party that won, the TMC, is a sort of local party in West Bengal. They don't have a national presence. So them beating Modi is not an indication that there's a new national opposition rising up. If anything, it's that this party managed to contain his rise locally. 
Um, now, there's there's even more complications here. For instance, Modi's overall numbers came down from the national elections in 2019, uh, which would indicate that his popularity has been declining. This wasn't a one-off event. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's generally a sort of complicated picture as to what this says about the BGP's popularity. And, and the second point, though, to what Jen was saying is that even the numbers that they got were somewhat ill-gotten in the sense that India's Elections Commission, which is this widely respected nonpartisan organization that sets the rules for how campaigns are supposed to work, seems to have, in, in recent years, tilted the playing field in the BJP's favor. It's not clear why they do this or what levers of, of influence the BJP uses to push them in that direction, but it sure seems like it's happening. So in West Bengal, so there were a few particularly egregious things, right? So they had this super long campaign period, which not only helped spread COVID, seemingly, but they it also allowed the BJP to campaign in all of these different states as much as they wanted, whereas the TMC in West Bengal is a local party, so they didn't have to campaign in these other places. The long calendar didn't help them as much. Second, the way that they created voting periods for different regions made it easier for the BJP to get its voters out. Its strongholds had uh, voting periods that were more congenial to its turnout machine than what the TMC had. And then third, during campaigns, Indian politicians are not allowed by law to use hate speech. A BJP person in West Bengal did very clearly. It was like not a contestable thing. And the Elections Commission gave this person basically a slap on the wrist, right? It just... It is clear that levers were being pulled to make sure the BJP had an advantage. And the TMC's lead strategist after the election said, look, if they hadn't been cheating this way, if the EC hadn't been involved, they would have won probably under 50 seats compared to the nearly 80 that it seems like they got. And while that's you know possibly an overstatement from a campaign strategist who wants to you know, exaggerate his own prowess, it does indicate and point to a real underlying reality, which is that the BJP stacked the deck in their direction, and they still suffered a defeat way, way, way larger than what they were expected to lose, even by the the exit poll average, which slightly favored the TMC. It it does seem, I I think, in all estimates, like a notable setback for Modi, even if it can't be called like a full-scale rout of the BJP. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's an interesting tension that you tease out a bit, which is that, you know, as we mentioned kind of at the top of the show, you know, Modi's kind of entire political project beyond, you know, he has made some big economic promises, but he's failed to deliver on on most of them, uh, which is really important. Um, but it's been, you know, essentially, you know, religious divisions. So what's interesting, and that you kind of mentioned this in your piece, is that in West Bengal, it seems that the TMC was able to essentially kind of split the Hindu vote by appealing to the poor, by appealing to women, by appealing to some of the more kind of grassroots, you know, kitchen table, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use, you know, day-to-day realities of life in terms of income inequality um, and, you know, the haves versus the have-nots, et cetera, and pointing out that, you know, the BJP has not really come through on its economic promises. And, And I think that's interesting because it could potentially present a model for other opposition parties elsewhere. And I think this is how it really ties back into COVID, which is if you have on top of Modi's, you know, failures kind of more broadly, even before the pandemic to really follow through, um, you you remember we had these big farmers protests, right? The, the, they tried to push through agricultural reform, the BJP, 
and it was a massive revolt from farmers who said it was going to destroy their their livelihoods. That you know was still going on throughout COVID. So you have all of that going on, and then you have Modi's mishandling of the pandemic and the second wave, including his own constituents, you know, in his his home state, really suffering. You put that all together, and it it I think you know it doesn't mean that this is the end of Modi. I don't think it's it's that far, but it definitely shows that potentially his you know, rising star and his, you know, his trajectory and his continued grip on power is potentially starting to slip or there are starting to be cracks that I think the opposition parties are very much hoping that they're going to be able to get in there and exploit. And they are pushing very hard, you know, right now to, you know, point fingers at Modi for his failure over COVID. They are, you know, doing things like accusing him of, you know, not delivering the foreign aid and saying, hey, Modi, Where's your, you know, where are, where's all that foreign aid that we've been getting? Um, where are you? You know, what are you doing? Are you not delivering the oxygen, et cetera? And they're really trying to put it directly on Modi's shoulders to try to exploit those cracks. You know, if there's one big takeaway from all of this, it's that, you know, again, as Alex said, dictators have politics too. Not that Modi is technically a dictator, right? He's he's definitely elected, but he has some very strong authoritarian tendencies and has tried to kind of subvert Indian democracy. And I think you know, if there's one big takeaway, it's that there are cracks starting to show and it could potentially spell trouble for Modi going forward. If there's an opportunity for him here, um, as morbid as it is, it's like you could sort of live up to that, you know, the only your, your self-image and actually like save India at this time. Um, you know, you, you, you sort of did it once. Um, I wouldn't say saved India, but like you, you kept the worst, you know, you staved off the worst. You could now help India recover if you actually like move pretty quickly. And in somewhat to his credit, like his foreign policy has been very helpful because he he made very close ties with China, close ties with with um with the US uh, and others. And like here comes America to help right now with a bunch of, you know, aid and 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 manufacturing, whatnot with joining the quad. Like India did not have to necessarily go this way. Um, but he followed through. And and of course you have Biden in the White House, and, and then that helps, but still like you know, he he the his government set up sort of the right pieces to get help in in in, in times like this, and that isn't was not predetermined. So that is part of it. But like now is the time he could step up and actually be sort of this savior of India, this whole narrative that he's built around himself and that many of his followers believe him to be, many of whom will not abandon him no matter what. Like this is the time for him to be who he says he's going to be. As I mentioned earlier, like he sort of painted himself into this corner. It's hard for him to admit failure because then, you know, you are, then you will have to say you have failed and are not sort of the the savior that you are. But like it, the alternative is obviously far worse, right? I mean, if you just think of it from a cold calculating political angle outside of the, you know, just moral and ethical and, 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 and health issues, like you have no choice but to step up and solve this problem now instead of just sort of wishing it away. It's somewhat surprising to me, despite everything I've already said, that he's not doing that, um, that he's still sort of head in the sand. And I get that there are tons of issues here. CNN had a devastating video report, which we'll put in the show notes. The uh, Clarissa Ward, no relation, um, went to, as far as I know, um, went to uh, a hospital in India and just saw how, you know, the horrifying scenes, people basically on, you know, on the floor or their patients lacking oxygen and she's interviewing you know one of like the local politicians and the head of the hospital is coaching this guy on like what to say in response and Clarissa Ward is, is like looking at the camera being look he's coaching the answers we're going to get here are pretty bad 
And like, that's sort of the rot under Modi, right? That there's, I mean, granted, you don't want to be a hospital director and a, and a politician and look like you're failing on the job. But like in, in a Modi world where you sort of have to show that you're doing well and, you know, everything is fine, like, you know, the 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 fish rots from the head. So I sort of took that as, as, as a weird implicit, you know, rebuke um, of just how bad things are. And like, these are the kinds of things that, that Modi has to change. This is the kind of situation that, that he has created. And like, he really could sort of come out on top ahead of elections in a couple of years um, by turning this around. Uh, I just don't see any signs of it for the moment. Three, three things I want to say to, to add to that. The first is that the effect of COVID on elections is yet to be clear. A lot of the voting in West Bengal happened before the outbreak got really bad there. Because again, it was such a long voting period that, you know, the, the results would have fluctuated. There's some evidence that in the later rounds after the outbreak got bad there, that there was some anti-BJP effect, some punishment for their handling of the coronavirus. But that's sort of very preliminary statistical evidence. We won't know for, for some time if that actually hurt him. There are more assembly elections coming up down the line, including in some states where Modi has traditionally had a lot of support that could serve as a barometer, right? If the BJP does poorly in those elections, that would be a clear sign, a real clear sign, that COVID is having an effect in this general mismanagement. Uh, the second point, though, is like, as Alex just suggested, the elections are, are pretty far away. The next national parliament elections are in 2024, so it's three years. And those three years, not only is it very plausible that COVID will be eclipsed as the number one issue, but the government has a lot of time to double down on its anti-democratic practices, you know, interfering with the elections commission, so it ends up rigging the election. They've done a really comprehensive job cracking down on the freedom of the press uh, in a variety of different ways, but one of the most notable is, is like funneling ad dollars from the government only to friendly publications, which makes it very difficult for newspapers in particular that want to criticize the government openly to function. They've used sedition laws to arrest peaceful protesters. They have effectively mobilized social media as a propaganda network, not only like creating basically fake news networks on WhatsApp, which is really commonly used for communication, but also attempting to strong arm international social media like Twitter and Facebook into taking down posts critical of the government and actually succeeding at it during the COVID outbreak, right? They've taken down anti-Modi posts on those platforms at the government's request. So this isn't, you know, like, hypothetical authoritarian interference with, with government. It's very, very serious. It's happening. It is almost certainly affecting the fairness of elections. And it's probably only going to get worse in the next three years, which means the opposition would need to do something pretty dramatic, right? And that's the third problem. And the third thing that's really worth taking seriously is a lot of India's problems stem from the fact that there isn't a viable national alternative to Modi right now. The Congress party is currently controlled by Rahul Gandhi, who is the descendant of the political line that stems from Jawaharlal Nehru, who is roughly India's George Washington, its first leader, and the guy who sort of created and constructed the founding nature and identity of the state more than anybody else. Uh, and the Nehru's daughter, Indira Gandhi, was the next really significant prime minister after him, and there, there were other Gandhis in power. You know, and it's just like this is this whole dynasty, but Rahul, the current Congress leader, is just not an effective politician. Or you sort of run the party into the ground. It's this personal fiefdom that doesn't stand for the kind of secularist, social democratic 
politics unapologetically and effectively that it used to, in part because the secularism in India has taken a significant hit. The BJP has taken significant advantage of that, at least among the Hindu population. And, and so you end up having this, this really ineffectual, divided national opposition because Congress is, is run by somebody who's not especially competent. It's not clear who would replace him, even if they did get rid of him, that would be better prepared to unite the party. And there's no other clear opposition faction. There are a lot of regional parties like the TMC that are effective where they operate, but they would need to really work together to try to challenge the BJP hegemony over national politics. And you're seeing you see some efforts like that. Like in Hungary right now, the opposition parties have all united in some kind of like basically power-sharing agreement where they, in the next elections coming up next year, try to uh, not interfere with each other's efforts to challenge the government and run as a united bloc from like socialists to far-right anti-immigrant party. Like they're all cooperating because they recognize that they're facing an existential threat from Viktor Orban's government destroying Hungarian democracy. Can the Indian opposition do that? Can it get out of its own way? That's really far from clear at this point. And so in that world, even all of these myriad failures on COVID and democracy that we've been talking about, Indians still want to live in a democracy. Modi's argument is he's not destroying it, even though he is. Can, can, can they take advantage of this? I don't know. But that's it strikes me that that's the principal barrier and, and is often the case in a lot of these autocratizing countries. Um, and, and so... <laughs> With that long-winded monologue, and I hope you I hope you enjoyed that, worldly listeners, uh, because I kind of, you know, I sometimes just talk to you guys. I, I hope you like that. I, that's why you listen to the show, um, in addition to, to all of us talking. That's why <laughs> you don't here. like hearing us talk. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna. We're gonna leave you there. I want to thank our producer Sophie Lalonde for her really really hard work. I want to thank a lot of sources in India who have talked to both me and Alex for our reporting on this topic and helped us uh, get up to speed on COVID and Indian politics. And I want to uh, encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, we're there. So come check us out. Thanks a lot. We will talk to you next week.